It's time for truth, a ministry of Truth Family Bible Church in Middleton, Idaho. It's time for truth exists to glorify God through the edification of his saints in our local church and for the benefit of the church around the world. I'm your host, Pastor Danny Steinmeier, and I'm joined in studio with my friend and fellow elder at TFBC, Jim Berg. Faithful listeners, welcome once again to another episode of the podcast. Wherever you may be and whenever you may be listening, we want to thank you for making us part of your day. It's another beautiful spring day in May, and June is amazingly just around the corner. It's, uh, I don't know, I don't know how we got here, but we are glad that you are joining us for our conversations uh, regarding our church distinctives in this first season of the podcast. And this has been a, a good series for us, and hopefully, uh, it has been beneficial for you as well. So thank you once again for listening. Before we get into our topic for today, Jim, how are you today? Yeah, you know, I'm struggling a little bit. We had, uh, Dad had been struggling with some falling down over the past kind of couple weeks, and then he died yesterday. So we found out he died yesterday. So we're planning that trip down to Florida to be with the rest of the family and go through the the right process of mourning and remembering and and then trying to figure out how to bring God's word to uh, a family that needs to hear it. So that's my burden. Um, I'm headed out today driving across country. So I, I enjoy that. You hear my voice pick up because I really enjoy God's creation and really enjoy driving. So I'm excited about that. So, Well, you'll have a fair bit of it ahead of you driving to Florida. I so, will. Yes. I will. I get nine hours in tonight. All right. Sounds so. good. Well, well, we'll continue to pray for you and your family uh, in the wake of uh, of this news. And, and uh, death is always uh, a reminder of the reality of the broken world that we live in and the curse that, that we are under, but yet it is uh, the, the believer that uh, hopes in the Lord, and, uh, and we look forward to the restoration and resurrection uh, of all things by God's grace. We'll, we'll continue to keep you in prayer. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. And then uh, this, uh, this episode, we want to also just talk briefly about some current events before we get into our discussion in our uh, Doctrines of Grace series. And so Jim has some uh, some news and, and wants to, want, we want to talk about some things regarding uh, things that are happening. And I think this was a burden on me before, and we had talked a little bit about this, and even before my father's death is, um, you know, the importance of the local church. You've heard me and you and I have talked about how important that is, but how important it is as we go forward. Um, and what I see is this pattern of communication deteriorating is the way that I talk about it. Um, you know, we, we have social media now, which is all over the place. We've got, uh, people have busy lives. Uh, they have no time, they're out of time and they need more time. But the reality is, is that we've lost our ability to communicate effectively. And I laugh at that because I tell this story about, it was 25 years ago at, at uh, Chicago. And I had two employees that were arguing back and forth on email and they sat right across from each other and they're emailing and then they get mad and you see it capitalized and then they get madder and they bold it and then they get madder and it's red. And I literally had them both stand up and they were face to face because there was just a cube wall in between them and made them talk to each other. And I think that's, that's a symptom of our society. We've learned, we've lost the ability uh, to communicate face to face. And I see this 
even our local church, you know, people that want to leave by sending a text or, or not communicate well, uh, even what they're thinking as it relates to that. And that's a burden. I think we've got to get back to that. And the reason I say that is because with social media, um, you're distanced from it. And this only gets worse with artificial intelligence. And we saw it two weeks ago, Phil Johnson, who we all know, posted a video of Vice President Kamala Harris. It turned out that it was AI modified, and it wasn't actually her saying it, even though it looked like it, she was saying it. Um, 60 Minutes this week hired an ethical hacker to show how easy it was to scam people. So they actually ran an episode where they scammed people using artificial intelligence. And then we had the U.S. Pentagon issue that surfaced this week. I don't know if you heard about it, but um, there was video of it on fire, and people thought, oh, my gosh, we're being attacked again. And it was AI generated. And so, you know, the danger is if you don't know how to communicate and connect locally, face-to-face, at a minimum with calls, um, the world that we know is manipulated and getting worse and worse. And I think there's a real danger in that. And it really, it leads us to uh, when the next big event happens. You know, I think we're in a think we're in this comfortable post-COVID period right now where, you know, things are getting back to quote unquote normal. Well, there is no normal. You know, we've talked about this. There's no neutrality. So everyone that was evil that was out there, they're planning their next move and we can't be numb to it, not only in our communication, but in our awareness of what's happening. And so, you know, my burden is we need the local church. You need your local people and family that are here with you that you can look face to face and uh, and not be fooled when this next thing comes because we already see signs of what it's capable of doing and it could be a big deal it could be a big swipe across you know the nation or the world and we've got to have ourselves prepared for it so that's that's my burden right now is that we don't uh, we don't skip our first priority and skip the local church I think I think that's <clears throat> important too because one of the challenges even during COVID is the demoraliz- demoralization, the demoralizing effect of being constantly lied to. And so when if things continue to be faked, if things continue to be um, manufactured, manipulated in such a way that it becomes very difficult to believe anything, believe anything you see. You know, video evidence is, has been, of course, a powerful thing and in the society as well as in the judicial system. And when things can be faked and things can be ma- uh, manipulated, um, you don't know what to believe. And that has a very demoralizing effect on people. And uh, it, it generates fears and anxieties as well as just uh, a, a lack of faith and trust. And, the, and you can end up, similar to what you're talking about, Jim, you, you can end up withdrawing uh, from people, culture, things, uh, and uh, I, I appreciate your emphasis there, the, the the need for us in the church to have our people that we especially care about, that we are face-to-face with, that we attend the gatherings, we we love one another. Those are uh, the commitment to the local church is so important. It's going to be a buffer to the world that is hostile to truth and to reality. I was hesitant to bring it up because every time you bring up come to the evening service, we have less people attend, right? And so, you know, that's, it's this... Uh, it's this burden that I have and I do believe that it gets worse and I, I hope that I'm wrong in that. But, and then I get that people uh, say they don't have time, but the reality is, is we all have the same amount of time 
it's really a question of our priorities. And, you know, I love Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all things will be added to you. You, you and I've talked about this. You cannot skip priority number one, God, and think that you're successful in any of your other priorities. Mm -hmm. So you can't have a very successful business. If as you much don't as put you God think first. you're serving him. Even though things may be going well, right. they're not. It's just, it's a biblical concept that doesn't work. You have to put God first. It's right there in Matthew 6, 33. So uh, Hebrews tells us not to neglect meeting together. Well, do we do that? Or do we just go on Sunday and then think that we accomplish that task? Well, sometimes we just don't think we're as needy as we really are. Right. And that's a big part of it. Yeah. Well, good. Well, thank you for um, bringing that conversation to the forefront and we'll continue to uh, monitor these things and trying to be uh, wise about the way in which we interact with uh, the world and the news around us. And uh, uh, we pick up, though, today, uh, continuing in our series on our church distinctives, and we are continuing to talk about our love for the doctrines of grace. And last week, we talked uh, about the first doctrine of grace in the acrostic tulip, and that it was the letter T, which stands for total depravity. And really, if you if you understand and you get right the biblical doctrine of total depravity, then that sets the foundation for understanding the rest of the doctrines. We talked about that. And so we see that the Bible is clear about the condition of man as fallen. We are fallen and broken creatures who have been affected by sin, uh, so that our nature is sinful, leading us to be sinners in heart and in practice. And so total depravity speaks to the reality that every part of what it means to be a human being is corrupted, it is tainted, it is spoiled, it is poisoned by sin. And that means our thinking and our affections, our emotions, our will, and even our bodies, are, uh, and every part of us really, is corrupted by sin. And that radical depravity then renders us spiritually dead, physically dying, and therefore unable to come to God on our own. Um, our hearts are stony, our eyes are blind, our ears are deaf, our natural minds, Paul says, cannot comprehend the things of God. There is nothing good in us that is nothing untouched by sin that would cause us to respond positively to God. And so in our depravity, we are at war with God, we are enemies against him, and we don't want God and his salvation on his terms. And that's not to say that man on his own isn't religious. Man is very religious and what this doctrine of total depravity highlights is that man is not a neutral moral being where he, all he needs is enough evidence or a sufficient emotional appeal or, or positive friendship or even a sign from heaven. The corruption of mankind is total, making us total enemies of God, separated from him and unable and unwilling to be reconciled to God on our own. And what that means is that we, as not neutral beings as enemies of God, that means we will manufacture and invent and replace God with all sorts of other idols. We were talking just before the podcast about uh, uh, idols and, and things that um, uh, the ancient pagans uh, understood and developed and built, as well as the ones that we have in our hearts. And, and so it uh, doesn't mean that man isn't religious, but he's not neutral just needing the right formula to get him to make a good decision. And having established, again, this doctrine of total depravity last week, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, by the way, I would encourage you to check that out first and then come back here. But having established the doctrine of radical and total depravity, we come to the most controversial of the doctrines of grace, and that is represented by the letter U in TULIP, 
and that stands for unconditional election. And when I say it is controversial, I also mean that it is a doctrine that is vehemently hated as well. So listen, uh, 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 listen to a few quotations from some professing Christians who hate this doctrine. But note first that election and predestination are really synonym, synonymous words or synonyms. Uh, election emphasizing God's choice. Predestination emphasizes God's choice before the foundation of the world, having chosen beforehand. Uh, God's choosing in advance. But uh, but both terms, both words, are really about God's choosing to save some sinners and not others. And I want you to listen to some of these quotes. Quote, To suggest that the merciful, long-suffering, gracious, and loving God of the Bible would invent a dreadful doctrine like this, predestination, which would have us believe it is an act of grace to select certain people for heaven and by exclusion others for hell comes perilously close to blasphemy. Another quote, this doctrine is the most unreasonable, un incongruous, self-contradictory, man-belittling, and God-dishonoring scheme of theology that ever appeared in Christian thought. No one can accept its contradictory, mutually exclusive propositions without intellectual self-abasement. It holds up a self-centered, selfish, heartless, remorseless tyrant for God and bids us worship him. Well, I'd say that they hate that doctrine fairly, <laughs> fairly well. Another one, to say that God sovereignly chooses who will be saved is the most twisted thing I have ever read that makes God a monster no better than a pagan idol. And then this other one, this doctrine makes God a diabolical monster, once again, using that phrase monster, and reduces man who was created in the image of God to a mere robot. So there are a few themes in the rejection of this doctrine. Well, one is that it offends the intellectual sensibilities that are committed to the death to, um, in terms of the autonomous free will of man. Uh, another is the sense of protecting God, because to believe in such a doctrine makes God into a monster. For God to violate man's free will, supposedly, and to save him when he cannot and would not save himself, to them that makes God a monster. And again, really, this comes back to, they clearly, th those quotations clearly do not understand the seriousness of the situation. They don't un understand the totality of depravity. And so for God to violate the will of a creature who would never come to God on their own and is, per and is entirely incapable of doing so, that makes God a monster? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get into more of this. Yeah, it's an imbalance of God's attributes. And I think that they think, they must think, you know, his attributes... His love attribute is greater than his other one. In reality, he doesn't have separate attributes. All of his attributes are totality. We study them individually because of scripture, but you can't separate his attributes from one another. Right. And I think that's where they, they really fall down is they're seeing him as a monster instead of a loving God, but also a just God. Yeah. So. No, there's a, there's a lot of issues with, uh, with this level of, of vehement hatred for um, what the Bible clearly teaches and we'll get into the text as well. Yeah, and we talked about this on each one of these, like total depravity we talked about last week. The number of scriptures that support this is unbelievable. It's the same thing here. There's so much scripture associated with it. As I was preparing, you could just go forever on the number of scriptures. And so if you're having questions on this or you want to go deeper, please reach out to us. We would love to give you more. Yes, these doctrines of grace, um, these are not fringy. Right. <laughs> these are everywhere. Right. Uh, and that's 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 why we want to. That's why we love them, and that's why I want to talk about them because right. they're so um, 
paradigmatic of the Christian faith. Let's give them one. So, so election Psalm 65, four, blessed is the one you choose and bring near. I mean, <laughs> who chooses? God chooses. I mean, so anyway, keep going. Dave. That's the, that's the one that's uh, most important, isn't it? Yep. Well, the Arminian position, uh, which again is this, is the one that really is lifted up in opposition to uh, the the standard position that has been um, the one uh, adopted and accepted by the church uh, for even now uh, thousands of years. The Arminian position seeks to protect the free will of man, and in so doing, uh, they really limit the free will of God, and they have a massive problem with significant portions of Scripture. And to me, that is a totally backwards, really, approach to the Scripture. It starts with man, our understanding, our way of thinking, and our observation of experience, and we read that back into the Bible. And when we do that, I propose that man becomes a monster, because we attempt to eliminate God's free will to choose. And this is the part that um, I think is, is so often missed and lost. Uh, how is it, Jim, that man's free will is so sacred and must not be supposedly violated, but we can deny that God has a free will to choose, and somehow we aren't monsters? I don't get that. Yeah, I mean, it, it sets us up as creator instead of God. I mean, if he is creator, it's his to choose what he does with it. Why? <laughs> that. Because he's creator. Because he's God. So yes. if you accept that premise, you have to you have to afford it to him first. Yeah. So in those quotations, you you saw in there the um, a, a sense that there was a doing harm to the nature of man, and that's really what's being protected most. And when you are seeking to elevate man to a, a more highly than we ought to, thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think then you actually do um, injustice and do harm to the understanding of who God is. See, and even in those statements you read earlier, what I, what I hear is a sense of pride. It's this, it's this issue of elevating ourselves, which is pride. So Definitely. Well, let's work on a few definitions here before we get into some passages. Let's start with the word election. To elect simply means to choose or to select. And we're talking about God's choice of sinners who are depraved and incapable of both accomplishing the righteousness that God requires and who are incapable of responding to the call of the gospel. So again, if you understand total depravity as total inability, as being spiritually dead in trespasses and sins, then you move on to the subject of election. And nobody can dispute that God chooses people out of the world for his own possession. You have to absolutely deny Scripture um, in order to deny that God chooses people out of the world for his own possession. Now, we, we notice that the doctrine of election begins with a word that modifies the main idea, and that is the word unconditional. No honest Christian can deny that election is all over the Bible, but because you just have to read. But the issue really comes down to the basis for election, God clearly elects people to be saved, but what requires clarity is the basis upon which he does so. And the Calvinist response to the Arminian position is that election is not based on any precondition in man. The Arminian position argues that God's choosing of sinners comes from his foreknowledge and is based on and determined by or conditioned on what man chooses to do with the gospel. In other words, the argument goes something like this. 
God, being eternal and omniscient, is able to see what individuals will do throughout their lives, what individuals will uh, hear the gospel, and what individuals will put their faith in Jesus. And based upon seeing who will choose to accept Jesus as their Savior, God then chooses them or selects them. And so really what it is, is, is election then is seen to be based upon man's future choice that God just decided to uh, write down in advance. So it's not really God's choosing, it's our choosing, but God, so God's is sort of this, um, this pre-writing down what is going to happen in the future. It's just a really a product of what they would say is his foreknowledge. He sees who will believe of their own free will, and he elects to write their name in the Lamb's Book of Life. He was able to do so before the foundation of the earth, because, again, he foresaw or foreknew who would choose Christ from their own free will. And the Calvinist position sees that Scripture points to God's choice as being grounded in the freedom of his sovereignty and not based on anything, any condition in man himself or from man's actions. God chooses sinners for himself because he chose to set his love upon some so that he would be a gracious and glorious Savior and he did not choose others to be saved so that he would be glorious in his execution of judgment. And so God's choice or election or predestination is unconditional, based solely on the freedom of God's will to choose whom he would save for the sake of his love. So let's look at some scripture passages that are relevant to this. The first one relates to Abraham. And to start with, Abraham was an idolater. He was lost and dead in his trespasses and sins. He was not seeking after the one true living God. Nobody preached the gospel to him, but God chose to reveal himself to Abraham and to covenant with him. And in Genesis 18, verse 19, it specifically says, For I have chosen him, so it's God has chosen Abraham, so that he may command his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And so God's choosing of Abraham to be the family through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed would have nothing to do with Abraham's free choice. Abraham and Sarah could not, by the way, simply choose to have a baby. God chose to give them Isaac in their old age when it was humanly impossible to have a child. So again, it wasn't their will that had anything to do with it. It was God's overriding natural uh, human and even biological things that his will might be done in their lives and that he might give and give to them and bless them with his promises. And so just like God is sovereign over natural life, he chooses to give life to men's souls according to his will. And furthermore, those people who were physical descendants of Abraham, circumcised and privileged to be part of the nation of Israel, they didn't choose that life either. They were born into it by the sovereign choice and will of God, just like every person is born into the family that God has sovereignly chosen to place them in. Why would spiritual life into uh, God's family be different? None of us chooses to be born. God is sovereign over all of life. But we want to continue with this family and nation of Israel in Abraham's line a little bit further. In Psalm 105, verse 43, Israel is called his chosen ones. 
Psalm 135, verse 4, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. Also listen to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. And I want you to notice that the reason for choosing Israel had nothing to do with anything great in them. Verse 6, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so what God is saying here is he was not obligated and he was not persuaded by Israel's merits. They weren't big. They weren't powerful. They didn't have something to offer God. It wasn't because they were best in any physical or normal, natural um, uh, attribute or characteristic. It had nothing to do with their greatness. It had to do with God loved them and made promises to them. Therefore, he chose them and saved them. The Lord simply decided, once again, to set his love on them. That is the nature of salvation in the Old Testament. God chose to love a people out of all the people of the earth. He chose some. And that's a beautiful picture. Well, let's look also at the New Testament in John chapter 15, verse 16. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I mean, how can you get away from that? I mean, Jesus, that's awful mean of you. Why are you violating their free will choice? And, and, And he says, and, he, and I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This choosing was for a purpose. This choosing also meant that the rest of their life wasn't, uh, wasn't just autonomous and uh, free to do whatever they want. He chose them that they might bear fruit and that they might be blessed of God. The emphasis is unmistakable. Being a disciple that is a follower of the Lord Jesus is based on his choice of us, not our choice of him. And all over the New Testament, we are called the elect. That is a people who are chosen by God, Colossians 3.12. The saints are identified as those who have been chosen by God. Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Luke 18.6. Shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night? God's choice of us is what is emphasized. It is not to the saints who chose Christ. That that is not the way the scripture is written. The emphasis of glory is on the choice, the election of God. In Acts 8, excuse me, 13, Acts 13, verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Again, it's the language of election. So, Jim, of course we have to go to Romans 9, a classic text, Romans 9. This is a lengthy one, but I I want us to hear it. Uh, I want to start in verse 13 of Romans chapter 9, because it is perhaps the most um, most full... uh, exposition of this idea of election. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's quoting the Old Testament, so this is 
This is working out an old idea. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Yet, if we looked at those quotes earlier, it was all about God would be in, uh, unjust. It would be wrong. This is a terrible thing. Uh, and yet, Paul's argument here is, when God says, Jacob I loved and Esau I have hated, he says, there's no way that there would be injustice in God. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It goes back to what you were saying earlier, Jim, this idea of, um, I think God being the creator and the one who is sovereign and in charge of what he created and how he's doing it, I think he has the right to do with his creation, to have mercy upon whoever he wants uh, and to harden whomever he wants. That's his prerogative. God has the is the person with the most ultimate free will. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It can't get more explicit than that. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So here God speaks to Pharaoh. He is made known to Pharaoh, but not in a saving way, but to communicate that uh, that through him, God's will would be done. He has mercy upon whom he uh, has mercy, but for some, he also hardens. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires, verse 18, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make for, from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. So Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Why? There is no why. <laughs> the answer is because God decided it would be that way. Right. Is God not free? That has to be the primary thing that we hold up against this idea that man is free. Well, if man is free, then God is limited. Even more than that, you think about like true justice. In the, in the world that we live in today with the justice system so abhorrent, we were talking about that earlier as it relates to the election, wouldn't you want God, the, the perfect judge, to be the one that chooses justice versus, versus a man or men? The judge of all the earth will do right. He will do right, exactly. So, right. and you know, you, you've heard me say this, two dead bodies in the Garden of Eden would have been justice. That's right. You know, he, he chose to demonstrate mercy, which he also is, but we all live under mercy now, all of us. Right. No, that's that's good, and that's important. Um, we, we need to re realize that uh, that God is is good and in his freedom. But does God not have the right, again, as Paul said, to fashion the clay for his purpose? And I, I really like the, the title of a book by James White. It's called The Potter's Freedom. And that really captures the heart of the issue. Man wants to fight so hard for his own freedom, and to do so, he subordinates God's freedom to man's. God is only free to choose after man has made his determination. And that places the potter as subordinate to the clay. And that, my friends, is true blasphemy. That's the problem with this one. Yes. Got to get these right. That's right.
because otherwise that's blasphemy. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, a glorious text in uh, Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, so it starts off with worship. It starts off with just praising God for what he has done. Well, what, he, what has he done? Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the goodness in man, the ability of man, and his free will choice. Oh, wait, no, that was a typo. <laughs> according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. This, why is this important? Is this just theological nuance that's not really important? This is for professors in ivory towers. No, this is... This is chapter one of Ephesians, beginning with worship, beginning with a proper understanding of God leading us to a, a praising of the glory of his grace. That's what that's important for us. So if we don't get this right, that means our worship isn't right. It isn't in the right place. It isn't properly oriented. And so it's really important for us to understand. Well, let's address the main counter argument that God's election is based on his foreknowledge. That as God supposedly looks down the corridor of time, he saw those who would choose him. And so based on that, he chose to write their name in his book. And some of them would point to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So we had a, a previous discussion about the basis of God's choosing. Here it says it's according to foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. By the way, here we have a Trinitarian passage. Uh, and to be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So here God chose believers according to foreknowledge. But what is foreknowledge? Most people think it is just simply to know something in advance or ahead of it actually happening. Uh, and, and that's really... Um, I think, a, a, a misunderstanding. This idea of knowing is more related to an intimate knowledge or to knowing lovingly. So Adam, it is said, knew his wife, and she conceived. I'll say he knew her. He knew her very, very well, didn't he? Uh, but what Peter is saying here is that God knew us relationally before we existed. And that's an amazing concept. It's actually a mind-boggling concept, We'll look at Ephesians uh, again in a minute, but uh, it says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And what Peter is emphasizing is that God chose us on the basis that God knew us in a loving way in advance. There is no hint of knowing that there was something good about us or that he saw that we would choose him. There is no hint of that. Later, and actually in 1 Peter 1 verse 20, it says, for he, this, speaking of Christ, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Was the work of Jesus on the cross simply known about in the future? Or was the Father fully engaged in a loving relationship with the Son in advance of sending him to accomplish redemption? His foreknowledge was not simply about seeing the facts about the future of Jesus, but in relational knowledge born out of love inter-Trinitarian love for Christ by the Father. See, that's the interesting thing about that. When you're 
when you're replacing God's love with pride, you're doing two things. One is you're making yourself bigger and the other also making the Lord smaller. Exactly. It's a really interesting concept, Danny, and very dangerous. And, and very dangerous. This is not the zero-sum game of other, uh, other economic fe- features. If one wins here, the other one loses. Right. And that's where, that's where you have to be careful. When you, when you elevate man beyond what Scripture reveals, you actually tear down God. Tear God down. That's right. Well, as we wrap things up on this topic, I, I want us to conclude with some acknowledgments and some clarifications. We do acknowledge that a full grasp of the eternal purposes of God are too high for our finite minds to fully comprehend. But God has revealed the way things are in his word, and so we must study and we must accept what God says. We can't reject these things because it's hard or because I'm struggling. We have to be diligent students and stewards of God's word to accept what God says and to also study to understand it more fully. But this is God's doing, and just because things are difficult for us, it doesn't mean that we get to explain it away, to deny it, or to redefine it. And I just heard that echo in Paul earlier in Romans um, of Job, when Job thought he would answer back or question God's methods, God answered Job basically, uh, who are you? <laughs> More precisely, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? And so then Job goes, oh, wait, let me go ahead and shut my mouth. I'm going to put my hand over my mouth. I'm going to do so real quick because we all need to accept God's word and not reject it. Uh, it's not something that we answer back to God and think that we can do a better job of explaining I think that's things. such an important principle too. It's it, If you're struggling, if it makes God bigger, lean that way. Yeah. If it makes man bigger, you probably got it wrong. That's right. Well, and you said earlier, Jim, the difference between pride, humility says, I got to shut, I'm going to shut my mouth. Right. Put my hand in front of the microphone and muffle my own voice there. But no, there is this, uh, there's this sense of humility that says, okay, I think I'll let God speak and I'll be quiet. And Job recognizing he was speaking with God. I mean, I think that's, that's the key part is don't approach him, you know, flippantly. Don't approach God, you know, casually. Mm-hmm. Know who he is, study him, know that he's bigger than our minds are capable of, but don't use that as an excuse to make him little. This is why in worship, we are drawn to the, the awesomeness of God. Right. That he is high and lofty and greatly lifted up. And the challenge of a lot of modern worship is we bring God down to make him a lot more like us. Yeah, when we bow, you know, it's it's just not a physical bow. We should be bowing our spirit, our soul. We should be putting ourselves in a position of humility before God. That's right. Well, finally, the doctrine of God's sovereign and unconditional election does not contradict or in any way wipe out the responsibility of man to respond to and to obey the gospel. The scripture is clear about the universal call to believe, and we'll talk about that more in a future episode, because that's also part of these doctrines of grace. But election doesn't wipe out man's will. No, I like to say, no one comes into the kingdom of God kicking and screaming. Rather, when it comes to responding to the gospel, man's will is changed. He is born again, and that is not something he does for himself, just like none of us were born of our own will, of our own doing, we must be born again, born from above, so that uh, we are able then to respond to the gospel. So it engages our will, but we only do so because God has acted upon us. Nobody comes to Christ against his will. 
Rather, those who are chosen by God find in time that their will is changed so that they come to Christ. And they do so willingly. They do so joyfully. They do so repentantly. But since man is depraved, we give thanks that God overcomes our depravity. And he does so by his eternal purposes before the foundation of the world and electing some to salvation solely on the basis of God's choice to love unworthy sinners. Therefore, since it's all of God's doing, he is the one that gets all the glory. There is no boasting in Christianity. Well, that's all the time that we have for Truth Today. We want to thank you for joining us. And until next time, we hope that you will grow in your love and commitment to Christ and his church as we are sanctified in the truth. God's word is truth.